Well, good evening, everyone, and a warm welcome to Charlotte Chapel this evening. My name's Graham, uh, and I'm one of the elders. Uh, it's great to be able to meet together tonight to hear from God's word, to sing his praises through song, uh, and to enjoy fellowship together. Um, later on, one of our ministry apprentices, Finlay, is going to be bringing us God's word, continuing our series in 1 Samuel. So we're looking forward to that. Just as we open, let's hear these words in Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let's stand together and praise God's name as we sing holy, holy, holy.
together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you. For you are the Holy One. You are the mighty creator, the sustainer, the one who deserves all our glory and praise. You alone are holy. We adore you. You are perfect in power, perfect in love, perfect in purity, yet, Father, in your mercy, we can draw close to you. Not through anything we have done, but only through Jesus, who took our sin upon himself, bearing the judgment we deserved for our rebellion and being raised to life again, making a way of redemption for sinners. Father, we confess that although our mouths sing holy, holy, holy in this place tonight, so often our lives don't reflect the image of Christ. We sin, we cause harm to others with the words that we say, the actions we take. Yet, Father, we forget find forgiveness and mercy when we come to you in repentance and faith. Thank you, Father, for your great love, your great mercy and grace. Be with us tonight by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Later on in our service, we're going to be taking communion together. So if at any point you haven't picked up one of these little things on your way in the door, uh, don't feel an embarrassment. Just nip out during one of the songs, pick it up and come back. Um, and we'll be taking communion together later at the end of the service. Let's open up God's word together. Uh, the passage which Finley will be preaching from uh, later. And one of our members, Hannah Bartlett, is going to read that for us just now. Um, so the passage we're reading is 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting from verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. 
So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offering the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth Horon, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole of Is land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Thank you, Hannah. We're now going to sing a song together, which is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Now, the second verse contains uh, a line that says, here I raise mine Ebenezer. And it's always good as we come to sing songs together that we don't just sing things for the sake of singing them because they're on the screen, that we actually understand what they mean as we sing praise to God. So when we read in 1 Samuel 7, 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So when the Israelites looked at the stone, they would remember how God had helped them. So in this hymn that we sing so often, the idea is that we'd be motivated to greater praise when we remember how God has helped us. So as we prepare our hearts for, uh, for what God has to say through his word tonight, let's stand together and saying, come thou fount of every blessing.
Yeah, my welcome to you this evening. My name's Finn, and I'm one of the ministry apprentices here. Um, we're going to be looking at the passage that was just read for us a minute ago, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, so please look it up in your Bibles or on your phones. Uh, you're not really going to be able to make sense of what I'm saying unless you've got the passage in front of you. Uh, so as you do that, why don't I ask for God's help? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. It is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. It's an awesome privilege that your presence is with us and you want to speak to us this evening. Please help me to unfold your words clearly, humbly and faithfully now for your glory. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about one of the greatest battle scenes in cinematic history. At the end of the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. An army of 10,000 Urukai, half man, half orc, are laying siege to the mountain fortress of Helm's Deep, where Theoden, king of Rohan, has mustered his forces to defend his people against this evil opposition. So Theoden's army of only about 3,000 men waits nervously behind the fortress walls as a sea of terrifying opponents marches towards them. They're quaking with fear. And when the fighting starts, they courageously hold back the enemy, but they're slowly losing and keep having to retreat further and further back into the citadel. And it's at that point, when all hope seems lost, that Theoden is reminded of the words that Gandalf, you know Gandalf, the, the wizards, spoke to them before they left the Helm's Deep. Theoden looks up to a window with a, a beam of sunlight shining through, and he hears Gandalf's voice saying, Look to my coming, a first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. It's wonderful, it's better than that. So Gandalf's made a promise. He's going to come to them with an army and save them from an enemy onslaught. All they need to do is remember his words and look out for his arrival on the fifth day. They're vastly outnumbered and terrified, but they have a hope. And the reason I'm saying this is because this is the exact situation we find ourselves in when we get to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, apart from the orcs and the wizards and quite a few other details. You get the idea. If you haven't been here for our series in the book so far, then basically what's been happening is this. We're in Israel in the time of the judges, and the Israelites have asked Samuel, God's prophet, to give them a king to rule over them. So God sent Samuel to go and select Saul to be his king, to be their king, once he'd stopped looking for his donkeys. Saul was anointed and made king, and then we saw last week that he rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. And all the people were like, yeah, Saul's the best. But then Samuel comes along and he says, no, no, no. This has been God's all along. God's let you have a king because he's gracious and merciful, but you've missed the point. 
God is your king. And it's evil of you to reject him as your king and to ask for someone else. God's your king. That's the point. And he's rescued you time and time again. So you, Israel, and the king you asked for, need to turn to God and fear and obey him. So that's where we left off last week. But now the angle shifts. We hardly got any mention of Saul in chapter 12 because it wasn't really about Saul. It was purely about God and God's prophet. You've probably noticed that Saul seems to be the key figure in this passage. And at the center of this narrative, there seems to be this big clash. On the surface, it seems to be the Israelites versus the Philistines. But really, what we're getting on center stage is King Saul, the people's champion, versus Samuel, God's prophet. And surprise, surprise, when God's with the prophet, the king comes off worse. But you might be wondering, and this is what I was wondering when I first read the chapter, what exactly did Saul do wrong? What's the problem here? Well, if you pay closer attention than I did at first, the signs are pretty clear. And they all point to one big problem. You see, there's something crucial that Saul has missed. And it's so crucial that I don't want us to miss it this evening. So I'm putting it in very big letters behind me on the screen right now, hopefully. Don't miss this. Faith in God's words is the only answer to fear. Faith in God's word is the only answer to fear. And in order to understand that, we need to look at the text. We need to work through this passage together. So let me signpost our way through it with two headings. The first one is this. Fear without faith is futile. Verses 1 to 12. Have a look down with me. What's happening at the start of chapter 13? Saul's gathering an army at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. Verse 2. And then there's Jonathan, who we haven't met before. That's Saul's son. Jonathan has a smaller army in Gibeah and Benjamin, and the action starts with him. Verse 3, Jonathan goes and attacks one of the outposts of the Philistines, and all the Philistines heard about it. Oh no, that's not good news. Israel's arch enemy. And then Saul announces it to all Israel. He sounds the trumpets. Let all the Hebrews hear, and Israel hears the news. But look, look at verse 4. What does he tell them? Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Saul takes the credit for it. He's quite literally blowing his own trumpet. So the first things first, we get this contrast between Saul and Saul's son. Two very different attitudes. Pride versus courage. Saul sitting there with his army, not doing much. Jonathan goes and makes this brave attack. Saul takes all the credit for it, and Jonathan goes pretty much unnoticed. Saul is proud, and Jonathan, on the other hand, is courageous. And in the context of what we've seen so far, this is a bit of a red flag for Israel's king. What did Hannah say in her prayer back in chapter 2? She said, Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. 
For the Lord is a God who knows. That's a bit worrying for Saul, isn't it? But there's something else not quite right as well. Why was Jonathan the one who attacked the Philistines and not Saul? Wasn't Saul supposed to do this job? Didn't God instruct Samuel in chapter 9, verse 16, anoint him ruler over my people Israel? He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Saul's been commissioned with that job. So why is he shrinking back? Well, it seems we're not just seeing pride here, but fear. We've had a couple of warning signs about that already in Saul's character. Remember when Samuel was about to make him king in chapter 10 and nobody could find him because he was hiding himself in a storage cupboard? Seems like he's a little bit of a coward. And we can tell that here from the way he firstly doesn't attack the Philistines. But then secondly, he only sounds the trumpet to announce it to everyone once the Philistines have already heard about it. He wouldn't dare provoke them himself, but once they're provoked by Jonathan, he's remarkably quick to call for help. And so, verse 4, everyone is summoned to go down and muster in Gilgal. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Literally, they've become a stench in their nostrils. So as this terrifying army gathers to attack them, 3,000 chariots with 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore, it's time to see what our king will do. Another test of his character. How will Saul respond? With fear or faith? Well, naturally, the Israelites are pretty terrified. Verse 6, they're massively outnumbered. So they hide anywhere they can. Caves, thickets among the rocks in pits and cisterns. Probably not our understanding of a cistern, by the way. But look at verse 7. Some of them are even crossing the Jordan, leaving the promised land. That's pretty desperate. But Saul waits in Gilgal, his unmistakable fear spreading to all of the men he's got left. But before we criticize Saul for not rallying his troops and making some courageous attack, let's look at verse 8. It seems like Samuel has told Saul to wait for seven days for him to arrive before he does anything. Samuel's presumably going to come and make offerings to the Lord in the same way he did in chapter 7. Do you remember that? Philistine attack, everyone's afraid. Samuel, the priest, the prophet, the man of faith, makes a sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord to cry out to God on Israel's behalf. So maybe that's the plan here as well. Samuel seems like a pretty faithful guy. He trusts God. So it's probably a good idea for Saul to trust him and wait for him to arrive before doing anything drastic. But look what happens, verse 8. It gets to day seven, and Samuel's not there. Where is he? Saul's men are fleeing all around him. And so without waiting a minute more, Saul loses faith. He decides he's not going to wait for Samuel. And verse 9 tells his men to bring him the offerings to burn to try and save himself. This should ring some alarm bells if nothing else has yet. Saul was not chosen as the priest. That's Samuel's role. Saul was supposed to do kingly things, not priestly things. 
but he does it anyways. And then things get slightly awkward, don't they? As soon as he makes the offering, verse 10, Samuel arrives, just as he said he would. Saul quickly goes out to greet him to try and pretend he was just waiting for him the whole time. Nothing to see here. But immediately, verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? You're probably familiar with that question if you've got young kids. You can tell Samuel knows the answer already because Samuel is God's prophet, remember? God's mouthpiece. And when God asks the question, what have you done? He usually knows the answer and it's usually not good. That's the question he asked Adam and Eve right after they took the fruit. And it's the same question he asked Cain right after he murdered his brother. So what's Saul's answer? Well, it's a little bit pathetic, isn't it? He's trying to excuse himself. He blames his army for scattering. He blames Samuel for being a little bit late. He blames the Philistines for merely gathering their army at Mechmash. Notice they haven't even begun their attack yet. And he feigns piety, pretending this was all to seek the Lord's favor. And then finally, verse 12, he admits what he's done, making himself as passive a participant as possible. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. In other words, Saul is afraid when everyone runs away from him. He loses faith in the prophet and priest God has sent. And he's terrified for his own protection from the Philistines. And crucially, none of this was actually done out of a desire to seek the Lord's will. In fact, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time that what the Lord really cares about is not burnt offerings. It's something much more important. So no, Saul isn't seeking the Lord's favor. He's seeking a speedy solution to save his own skin. And as it turns out, that kind of approach is totally worthless. Fear without faith is futile. Now it's worth saying that being afraid in terrifying situations is natural. We would all be pretty frightened in this scenario, I think. I'd probably be finding myself some lovely cistern to go and hide in if I saw 3,000 chariots getting ready to attack. But the point is that there's something to hold on to here, despite the fear. Something that can overcome their fear. There's only one thing, actually. It's not safety in numbers. It's not self-confidence or pride in yourself. And it's not having some divine backup, like a genie in a lamp, to get God to help you out whenever you want. No, there's only one hope in the midst of fear, and it's faith. True faith in God. Didn't Hannah recognize that in her prayer? She said, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Why does she call God the rock? Is he a bit like Dwayne Johnson? Strong and tough and big? No, that's not really it. It's because he's steadfast, unshakable, a firm foundation, and his promises will not fail. When God's prophet promises to return, you know he will. When Jesus, in the gospel accounts, promises to his disciples that he's going to return from death, 
You know he will. And when this same Jesus promises to us that he's going to return at the end of all things to bring judgments and salvation, you know he will. Putting faith in that God is not some airy, fairy, pie-in-the-sky faith as the world understands it. It's not stepping out into unknown nothingness. It's like stepping onto a rock. It's standing on the unshakable promises of God. Faith in God is the only hope in times of fear. And without it, you're hopeless. We all are. Everything else will let you down, and everyone else will scatter. So for Saul, God's king, to lose faith in God's provision, that's not good news. And it gets worse. The judgment from Samuel is still to come. And here it is. My second point is this. Rejecting God's words brings ruin. Verses 13 to 22. How does God's prophet respond to Saul's excuses? Have a look down with me. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. Saul's actions were foolish. Why were they foolish? Because what Saul has done is that he's rejected God's command. That's the heart of it. But what was the command? We might have assumed it from verse 8 that Samuel had said to wait for him. But when was it given? Well, flick back a couple of pages to chapter 10, verse 8. The command was this from Samuel. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. This was God's explicit command through Samuel to wait until he arrived. Do you get it now? It wasn't just Samuel telling Saul to wait up. This was God's word to Saul. And Saul rejected it. The king turns from God. Trusting God's words, keeping it, treasuring it, is vital. And for the king of Israel, it's especially so. Do you remember the rules for the king of Israel given in Deuteronomy? God says this, Deuteronomy 17 from verse 18. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Do you see how crucial the word of God is for God's king? And do you see how Saul has totally rejected those commands? He's disobeyed his words and the promises that came with it. And that's the heart of sin, really. We've seen it from the beginning. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, hearing the promises of God's word and choosing to reject them. 
And what happens when you reject God, when you push him away? Well, what happens when the king turns from God? God turns from the king. Spoiler alert, Saul's kingdom will not endure. Verse 14, he's not the one we were hoping for. God is choosing a new king because Saul has turned away. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. You know how we use that phrase today? He's a man after my own heart. It's like we've got the same interests, we're on the same page. He and I want the same thing. Well, that's not actually what the Hebrew phrase means at all. It means God is choosing someone according to his own heart. A.K.A. God is going to appoint the king that he wants. Last time, God gave the people the kind of king they were after. Someone who looked impressive and kingly. But this time, God is going to give the people the kind of king he is after. The king he has chosen. So who is it then? Well, we don't get that now. This is a sneak peek. This is the Easter egg in the post credit scene of a Marvel movie. You have to come back in a few weeks to find out. But God's chosen king is coming. And it won't be Saul. So what happens next? Verse 15. Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. God's prophet leaves Saul at this moment. And that's not the last time we'll see that phrase at a significant point. It's a devastating moment. God has turned away because Saul has turned away from him. It's been like that from the beginning. God says, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Chapter 2, verse 30. And what are the consequences? Well, where are we left at the end of this passage? Saul's army is completely diminished. He's left with 600 men out of the original 3,000. And the Philistines have now advanced to Michmash, verse 16, and are now in control of the whole area, sending out raiding parties left, right, and center. And the Israelites are totally humiliated and subjected to their enemies. And look at what's happening in verse 20. The Philistines have managed to get rid of all the Israelites' blacksmiths, so they can't even make any weapons. And so they have to go down to the Philistines and pay for them to sharpen their farming tools, just so they have something to fight them with. It's pretty embarrassing. They've fallen at the feet of the Philistines, and they're being used as doormats. And so on the day of the battle, verse 22, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hands. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. It's a terrible state to be in. They're at the mercy of the Philistines, destitute and defenseless. There is no hope. Unless God brings about some miraculous victory by his own strength, then the Israelites will be wiped out. Rejecting God's word has brought them ruin. Rejecting God's word always brings ruin. It did for Israel and Israel's king. 
and it does for us too. That's the case for our church. If the word of God gets put to one side, neglected, sidelines in this congregation, then the church won't stand. It will fall to pieces if we stop taking seriously God's commands about what Christ's church looks like. So if you ever stop seeing this book opened at the front on a Sunday, read and preached, and also studied and spoken to one another, then we're heading for ruin. And that's the case for us all individually as well. If you want to hear God speaking to you, then open his words. He has spoken. This scripture is God-breathed. That's incredible. It's authoritative and sufficient. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of God is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. God's word is our weapon and it's sharp. Do you realize what a gift of grace that is? I don't want us to miss that tonight. God's word has been given to us so that we can know the God of the universe and we can have a relationship with him through believing in his son. 2 Timothy 3.15 says that these scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So God's given us his word to save us. So if you're a follower of Christ, then here's my encouragement to you this evening. Trust in God's true words. Put your faith in it. That's going to mean really trusting it. Make it the bedrock of your life. Remind yourself of God's promises day after day that he always faithfully fulfills. Read the words. Learn what it says. Speak it. Share it with others. Let it be the thing you turn to for help when fear sets in. Build your life upon it. Upon the truth that it contains. And that's going to mean really obeying it as well. Obedience isn't optional in the Bible. And you might not like the sound of that, but this isn't legalism we're talking about. This is love. Love for God means obeying his words. By the power of his spirit at work in us, shaping us into Christ's likeness. So don't have a mindset of the minimum when it comes to loving God. God's love is not like that. He pours it out to the max. So let's get our Bibles open and see what it's like to enjoy a relationship with God through the spirit he's given us. Because the word's not going to do much sitting on your shelf, picking up dust. You're in a battle against the forces of evil, sin, the world, and the devil. So friends, let's draw our swords. They're sharp. They're the weapons God has given us. Let's not throw them away. Because what happens when you lose your sharpened swords? What happens here? You're left with blunt farming tools. And it's left us all devastated. 
He's in ruin. Why? Because he let his fear overcome his faith, and so he rejected God's words. He let his fear of man become his master rather than fear of God's. And that's the big picture of this text. And it's the tragic reality of life for so many. It's the kind of state we're in if we've rejected God's. Ruin, death, darkness and hopelessness that lasts forever. Eternal separation from God. The Bible was clear about that all the way through. And at the end of the day, there's only one answer to that. There's only one possible solution to the great problem that we all face. And it's this. Turn to God's true king. If you haven't listened to a word I've said this evening, then please just hear me on this. Because this is the beautiful glimpse of hope that this passage gives us. A king is coming. And now the king has come. A king whose kingdom will endure forever. A man according to God's own heart. Because he is in his very nature God. He's the one who wins victory on behalf of his people. The one who overcomes fear, rejection and ruin. He's the one who lived the perfect life of obedience to his father's will. And who made himself nothing humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And taking our sin upon himself, he suffered and died to set us free. And then he conquered death itself so that we can have life forever. If you're here this evening and you don't know him, then please let me assure you that he is the one worth following. He is the hope we have. This is God's true king. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for the promise of salvation that you've given us in him. Which is not received through our own religion, but entirely by your grace. We don't deserve one bit of it. So our hearts are so thankful for the blood of Christ, which makes atonement for our sin and restores our relationship with you. Lord, please impress your word upon our hearts so that your name is glorified all the more through our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to be sharing communion together to remember all that Christ has done for us. So before that, we're going to stand and sing together. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Let's stand.
repeated. As we saw through the narrative of 1 Samuel 13, we see King Saul disobeyed God's word as he grew restless due to Samuel's delay. He took matters into his own hands to make that sacrificial offering himself, which was strictly against the law of Moses. Only the priests were permitted to sacrifice to the Lord. And it caused God's anger to rise up against the disobedient king. Now Saul here disobeyed God. He sinned, and so do we. We may play our own sin down, say it's okay. At least it's not bad as some people. And like Saul, we need reminding of who we are. Sinners in need of a savior. And ultimately be reminded of our savior, Jesus. Just as we've been hearing tonight, that he died on that cross for us, that we might be saved. But not only that, what he will do in the future in coming back and reigning in glory. And that's what we celebrate tonight as we take communion together, being reminded as we partake of the bread and cup that we are to remember him through this act. Jesus asked his followers to remember him in this way. And this is for those of us who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if that isn't you tonight, I ask that you just kindly sit and observe what we do. And we look forward to the day that we celebrate this meal with you as well. Now, since we've moved to use these cups here, there's a bit of rustling that happens when we open them. So we're going to have a bit of an amnesty now for you to open these before we take communion. So if you just open that first lid that you have, and once the rustling has died down, we will pray together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you during this time of communion to remember the salvation brought through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we confess that we can live day by day trying to do things in our own strength, living to serve ourselves, putting our own desires above others, turning away from you, and chasing after the desires of the flesh. We can become cold-hearted, lukewarm to your holy word, yet, Father, we know that even in our weakness, you display your glory and your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the bread, a sign of Christ's body broken for us at Calvary, for the wine, a symbol of the blood shed that redeems the sinner. And we remember that although redemption is a gift of grace to us, it was at unimaginable cost. Father, may we never lose the wonder of the cross and the amazing grace that you showed to us. As we come to eat of this bread and drink of this cup, Father, we confess our sin. We ask for forgiveness. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us through Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the life that that brings. In the quiet now, Father, we come before you and we confess our sin.
Father, we thank you for the amazing grace that you've shown to us. We praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you as our Lord and King, the one who creates, the one who sustains, the one who provides, the one who saves. We humble ourselves before you and bring the needs of our church our city and the wider world to you, knowing that you are a God who loves to hear the prayers of his people and answers them according to your good and perfect will. Your word instructs us to cast our burdens onto you and that you will sustain us by your spirit. And we do that now, knowing that you hear, that you act, that your will is done, and that it brings us great comfort to know you. We pray for the persecuted church, we experience such freedom in this country. Even though we see those freedoms being eroded, we do not face the same physical threats that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ of, around the world do. Our hearts break at the stories we hear coming from Afghanistan, believers being kidnapped, not just by the Taliban, but also relatives and neighbors. Father, act, bring about peace, provide protection for them. We pray for our sisters and brothers in Yemen, secretly living for you in one of the most dangerous countries on earth. We pray for your protection, for an outpouring of your love and for the hope that only you can give. We pray for peace there, that leaders of different groups would seek reconciliation and be given a powerful sense of your love. In our own country, we bring our leaders before you and those who are in authority before you in prayer. Give them wisdom to make the right decisions for the glory of your name as we see laws being passed, discussed, and shaped in Parliament over these last few months. We pray that you would be working out your purposes according to your good and perfect will. We know you're faithful and that your plans are never frustrated. So we ask you, Lord, that you help us to be faithful in prayer and our actions, to stand firm on your words and be those who with grace and love and hope seek to hold firmly to the word of life. Closer to home, Father, we pray for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with ill health at the moment, for Natasha Black, 
for Ian and Joyce Balfour, for Sarah Forsyth, for Maurice Gunn Russell, for Celia Barron, Lord, we particularly pray for her at this time. We pray that you'd be a great source of comfort and strife, joy in time of hardship, peace in time of difficulty. We thank you for Celia's faith in you, for the support and care of Sam. May they know your presence. May they be filled with the Spirit, being able to proclaim that Christ is their rock, their sure foundation, their hope in all things. Lord, there are many brothers and sisters who, who experience real loneliness and isolation. This has been amplified over these last few years of the COVID pandemic. Lord, give us as your people servant hearts to reach out and care for those who are on their own. Thank you. We have a friend in Jesus who knows how it feels to be isolated and can provide you com true comfort to our weary hearts. May we be a church family who love deeply, who serve out of gratitude in our hearts for the great grace that we have been offered in Christ. Lord, help us to be more like Christ, to devote ourselves to prayer, to the study of your word, to show the love that you have shown to us. Help us to show that to the people you bring us alongside in the communities that we live, in the places that we work, the people that you put in our paths. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we close tonight, we're going to sing a great hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And as I was thinking about what I was going to say beforehand, I was trying to put into words what this song says. I stumbled across Tim Chalice's blog where he puts it so perfectly. So I'm just going to read you what he says about it. As we sing these words, we are able to declare our intimacy with Christ, to sing of our assurances of salvation, to celebrate the gospel to delight in Christ's loveliness and to resolve to praise Christ through all circumstances. The movement of each of these themes extends from now this very moment through eternity. Let's stand as we close and sing together.
to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all God's people said amen